0: So this morning I'm dressed rather casually but not as casually as I had originally intended to dress. But I'm going to save that for a whole other Sunday because I realized I was splitting my messages and it would have really just confused you. Uh, And also it felt a little bit too theatrical and I I like to keep the theater in the theater and the preaching in. The Preaching House. As best I can. I mean, (laughs) it's not always easy being who I am. I have to admit. And to that end. While the storm clouds gather far across the sea, let us swear allegiance to a land that's free. Let us all be grateful for a land so fair as we raise our voices in solemn prayer. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with the light from above. From the oceans to the mountains, uh, to the prairies, white with foam, God bless America, my home sweet home. God bless America, my home sweet home. (laughs) I did the thing I always do with the song, I mess up the lyric right there at the mountains and the oceans. So I wanted to sing that for you, not because I'm such a fan of Kate Smith. Anybody remember Kate Smith? Okay. Um, But because it will come back around as I get deeper into this message. Um, That was, of course, the song God Bless America. It was written by Irving Berlin, actually for the armistice in 1918. That is why he wrote the song. It became a very relevant song, certainly, in the late 1930s and he reworked it just a little bit and then it was performed in that form for the first time on Armistice Day 1938 in the run-up to the Second World War. Irving Berlin, of course, was a small child when his family migrated from Russia to the United States and being Jewish, he knew all too well what the Nazis were up to. But that is not the crux of my message today. The reason I wanted to set up with that song and the song that will follow later in the message is that I'm eager for us to figure out a way to embrace a different kind of narrative around Thanksgiving. Our chalice-lighting words set us up well to explore this a little bit. And I feel like we have to find a way to be thankful without necessarily putting European settlement at the center of the narrative. In many ways, we need to actually decolonize our gratitude. We should not be subject to colonial heroics. We need to take the transactions out of thanksgiving. And so I'd like to just give you a few updates, actually some updates from my own life, really, uh, from some things that I've been observing that I I want to encourage you to be observing as well and to know more about on a day-to-day basis. Um, I actually posted outside, out by the parlor, there's a thingy standing up there with some resources from this sermon. Um, that I want you to check out. There's some scannable codes out there, some, some URLs, some websites um, that refer to this. So I want to take you back to earlier this week, I had the um, pleasure of being part of uh, the ongoing Native Cultures of the Americas seminar that's happening at Harvard University. Um, wonderful, wonderful uh, colleague that I met recently, Matthew Spellberg, introduced me to the work that they're doing, having conversations about what's happening in indigenous cultures in and around the country and here in Massachusetts. And the speaker this past week was uh, Professor Robert Anderson. Just, I want to just list a couple of the things that he's done and who he is, and you'll understand how important it was to be in the room with this man. He was on the Commission on Indian Trust Administration and Reform from 2011 to 2013. He was President-Elect Obama's tra- uh, Transition Team. Uh, of course, he's a Harvard Law Professor, Professor of Law and Director of the Native American Law Center the University of Washington Law School. Uh, he is currently at Harvard Law School as the Oneida Nation Visiting Law Professor uh, from 2009 until 2020. And he was a- appointed to successive five-year terms. He has been involved in, observed, and been part of litigating countless cases involving Native Americans. He uh, is part of the Bois Fort Band of the Minnesota Chippewa tribe. He has been also part of the legal team within tribal structures as well. He's a brilliant man, and I was blown away by how cheerful he was in all of this. He's someone who strikes me as one of those people that is grounded in a strong sense of hope. He is not diminished by day after day being presented with these cases that shouldn't actually be, quite honestly. That's one. So, getting to cases that shouldn't actually be, I want you to be aware of, if you aren't already and haven't been reading it in the news, the issue around the Mashpee-Wampanoag land rights. Um, Just to give you a headline from back in September, on September 7th, 2018, the Department of the Interior ruled that it cannot hold land in trust for a Massachusetts tribe, reversing a decision it made under former President Barack Obama. The agency, that is the Department of the Interior, said that the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe does not qualify for having land placed into trust because it wasn't under federal jurisdiction when the Indian Reorganization Act passed in 1934. Great reaction. Yeah. And the interesting thing about about that, (laughs) that... um, the whole concept of having to justify one's tribal identity based on a law that was created in 1934, um, that is a law that's actually based on the U.S. government deciding that it needed to, uh, to actually uh, measure things in terms of blood quantum, etc. I, I mean, I, <laughs> it, I could go way down a, a path with that one. But needless to say, we have tribes here right now fighting to be able to recognize their own land. Number three. So I'm sure you're all aware of the protests that happened at Standing Rock. Of course you are. I don't know how aware you are that it is still going on that there were hundreds of people who were arrested and charged with things. Many of them have been dropped. There are five people specifically who have federal charges against them for civil disorder. I will not go into the details of how the United States government defines civil disorder. Um, Again, that's an entirely separate sermon. That is not my purpose in bringing this up. I want to bring this up so that you know their names. I've also included in my resources outside uh, information that's specific to their cases, how you can be made more aware through the Water Protector Legal Collective of the work that's happening to free these people who are political prisoners. The only ones charged with federal crimes are indigenous people. Their names, Red Fawn Fallis, Michael Little Feather Giron, Michael Rattler Marcus, Dion Ortiz, James Angry Bird White. Our government is persecuting them for defending their land and their right to be. I know about some of this work going on, and I try to stay abreast with it. Through a colleague of mine, she's a UU minister in uh, Bismarck, North Dakota, Reverend Karen Van Fossen. She's white, and I listen to the way she speaks about being engaged in this work, and I understand what it must mean to truly be humble. When I spoke to her and she gave me these updates this week on what's happening with the water protectors, I was struck by how, again, there's a sense of hope and joy behind what she's doing. But I think it's best summed up in some words that she shared, um, it referencing the work of the Water Protector Legal Collective. That their work is not only justice work, it is healing work. She's talking about lawyers here. The Legal Collective brings a spiritual, even loving, presence to the challenging role of human rights defense in our time. They are in the courtrooms, the jails, the prisons, the rallies, the meetings, the carpools, the dinners, the prayers. They organize, they strategize, they motivate, they support. Their work is imbued with prayer, and their prayer feeds their work. What's been beautiful for me in getting to know Karen Van Fossen better is to understand how one could actually say many of the same things about her as well. She, to me, is a lesson in how Unitarian Universalists can show up in this work and in these conversations and in this battle, truly, with Native Americans. Indigenous people. I have another song for you. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. As I went walking that ribbon of highway and saw above me that endless skyway and saw below me the golden valley, I said, this land was made for you and me. Anybody remember that song? Okay. Woody Guthrie. <laughs> Y'all wanna sing it, I know. But before you before you you know launch into just impromptu go on. Woody Guthrie Land. I want to tell you a little bit about the song. So Woody Guthrie wrote this song in response to Kate Smith singing the other one. He was sick of hearing that other song. And so he wrote this song, but this isn't the original version of the song. He actually wrote it with quite a bit of sarcasm. The, um, <laughs> the original hook for the song was, God blessed America for me. But it was sarcasm. So imagine, you know, from the redwood forest to the Gulf Stream waters, God blessed America for me. He's like, I'm going to take this back. And oh, there were a couple other verses in there. <laughs> Was a high wall, was a high wall there that tried to stop me. A sign was painted, said private property, (laughs) but on the backside, it didn't say nothing. God blessed America for me. Um, Then there's another one here. One bright sunny morning, in the shadow of the steeples, by the relief office, I saw my people. As they stood hungry, I stood there wondering if God blessed America for me. (laughs) You're good. (laughs) Yeah. He was challenging and questioning how our patriotism is activated. I greatly appreciate Woody Guthrie, especially if you haven't read uh, about his life and his journey and what he comes from. It's quite remarkable um, how far he journeyed in life on many levels. And so the reason I wanted to share that song as a response to the first song was to ask you all some questions. I have no answers today. I have zero answers. I am a novice in this journey of understanding indigenous rights and being in relationship on a large scale, at least, with indigenous people in this role as minister. But I want to give you a way in to maybe asking yourselves these questions as well and how you would like to be in relationship. Another resource that I've included outside that I would love you to all have a look at is the Massachusetts state flag. So there's a lot going on there. (laughs) Um, And just to point you to a couple of key features, there is the Latin quote, ense petit placidam sub libertate quietem. Uh, By the sword we seek peace, but peace only under liberty. And above, our native friend who's in the middle, there's this disembodied arm carrying a sword, which is actually a holdover from the colonial version of it, that is the, meaning the Revolutionary War version of it, where they were all about, you know, we're, we're going to fight, we're going to fight, we're going to fight. Um, what's interesting, though, is that when you go back to the original, original seal of Massachusetts, that same indigenous person was naked except for a little clump of of, uh, foliage. Um, They're carrying, as they still are in the seal, a downward facing arrow which symbolizes a couple of things. I'll get to that in a second. But most importantly, on the very original seal, there was a little banner as if this person was speaking. Come over and help us. come over and help us. Which summed up to the originators of that seal, who are our forebearers, they were the Puritans who came up with this one, signified their mission to both, quote-unquote, educate the indigenous people and also have a commercial relationship with them. There are a lot of articles about this flag. I, I'm, I'm learning that, oh wow, there's a whole movement to change it. <laughs> I'd love, love to get on that, that wagon, I've got to admit. And honestly, our flag in some ways is no better than that DC football team or, Chief, uh, or Cleveland's Chief Wahoo. And I think if more people actually looked closely at this flag and understood the symbolism and where it comes from today, we might see some changes. It's remarkable, the the facial image of our current, of the current Indigenous person on the flag is based on Chief Thomas Little Shell, who was uh, part of the Chippewa tribe. Um, And it's, you know, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper, like every step, you're like, wow, this is shocking. Um, So, the tribe that he was a part of was actually moved (laughs) uh, into Canada, and they said no, and walked right back, but then fell into tremendous hardship. Um, He ultimately did die as they were trying to survive, having returned to their land. What is overwhelming to me, and what I'm asking in all these questions is, How do we change this relationship with indigenous people from being something that is based in transactions? Why are we willing to tolerate a transactional relationship? Transactional land. What does it even mean to actually own land? I had a conversation this week with a pastor One of the Cambridge black pastors, he was telling me about a church in Harlem that sold their air rights. (laughs) It's actually a good idea. (laughs) We got some really expensive air next door. But it makes you think, so who's making up these rules? When did air start having value? Oh, right, when you took over the land underneath it. (laughs) Makes you think. Who's making the laws? that law from 1934 deciding who can be Indian and who cannot, having reverberations today. Yet, we all have to answer to natural law. We're all going to be born, we're all going to live for a while, and we're all going to die. Wouldn't it be better if we were more engaged in some natural law more often and deeper than all this transactional law? What if we could embrace being in community with indigenous people based on natural law first? Wow, revolutionary. Transactional bodies that Indian Reorganization Act of 1934. I am not qualified to talk about blood quantum. I just want to use those words in this pulpit so that you know to go out there and do the research on the complex process of determining what it means to actually be native, indigenous, Indian, according to our government. But I will tell you this much. My own history is deeply impacted by this idea of how much blood one needs to qualify to be white. The one-drop rule, folks. My great-great-grandmother, all of her siblings were considered white because they could pass my great-great-grandmother could not pass because of her kinky hair. She had more than one drop in her, as, as did her siblings, but no one knew that. So, why do we tolerate a transactional relationship around Indigenous bodies? Lastly, transactional justice. And I say to you, no, absolutely not. There is no way justice can or should ever be transactional. Bearing witness, showing up on the border, on the southern border, with people in need, does not need a payoff. Accompanying someone in sanctuary does not need a payoff. Acknowledging the land stolen, taken, used, and abused from indigenous people, actually acknowledging it, holding it up, and saying, yep, that was us, does not need a payoff. We need to learn more how to get out of this transactional nature. Okay, I'm going to do this, and it feels good for me. It's fine if it feels good for you, but that should not be the reason you're doing it. The end game of justice is justice, not you feeling good. I love the fact... Oh, I love Mandy. Let's just put that out there. And I love the fact that she brought that story today about the Platinum Rule. Because it shouldn't be a question of how someone presents, whether that is physically or culturally or otherwise. That is never an invitation for our assumptions or interrogation or our assessment. That is colonialism when we do that. Not every people wants to function in the society the way we do. Not everyone wants our help. Come help us. We have to learn how to ask people if they want to even be in relationship before we start offering olive branches. We have to get away from the transactional relationships. And as I said, I, I have no answers. I have no answers. I, today, all I have for you are questions. And yes, I'm probably going to leave you just sort of hanging and being like, wow, okay because that's actually where we're at. We're willing to crack open this difficult history, to look at it and say, I don't know. I just know it needs to be better. And so that is my ask to you today, that you will all commit all commit to letting go of transactions as being part of how we are in the world with each other, and that we let a genuine love and affection and admiration for just the simplicity of each other's humanity to be what compels us to find authentic relationship. You can do it. We can do it. It will take time. It will take some courage. It will take some mistakes. But believe me, this land was indeed made for you and me. Blessed be.